it's a crazy story, but there's this one scene in the film that I found particularly funny, and some of you may find offensive, so I haven't shown it, but I'll tell it to you. Um, but um, you might see a picture here. The, the one scene in Talladega Nights is a scene of them saying grace around the table. They're saying grace around the table, and uh, um, you know, Ricky Bobby, the, the main character, um, he starts off grace, and he says, he starts off his grace this way, he says, dear Lord baby Jesus, and uh, that's how he opens grace. And then he carries on and then he references baby Jesus again. And then someone's offended by this. And it's like, can you just say grace properly? We want to win the races. Um, and then another guy's like, oh, you know, I like to picture Jesus with a tuxedo t-shirt, you know. He's kind of like smart, but he also likes to party. And he's like, I like to picture Jesus as someone who likes to party because I like to party. And then the kid says, hey, I like to think of Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And then the other guy comes back and he's like, oh, I like to picture Jesus, you know, like with these massive angel wings behind him and he's carrying electric guitar and he's like rocking it on stage and I'm in the front and I'm just like having the time of my life. And then, then they, everyone's like losing the plot and then he's like, I like the Christmas Jesus best and I'm saying grace, so I'm gonna say grace to baby Jesus. And um, anyway... Funny, uh, funny story. Some people might be offended by that, depending on how religious you are. But I, I thought that story was really great because it highlights the challenge we have of asking ourselves this question of who is Jesus? Uh, who is Jesus? And, and that is kind of the big question we want to ask ourselves, not just this morning, we want to ask ourselves that question as we uh, go forward through looking at the, the book of Mark. And, uh, and the reality is, is that probably all of us in some form or another have a different picture of Jesus. Uh, you can go to the next slide, Miles. But um, we might be familiar with this Jesus, you know, six foot two Norwegian Jesus with the halo on, a, on his head, you know, like uh, some people like to picture Jesus as, as the, the giant Norwegian uh, who always looks spiritual all the time. Uh, next, we've also got black Jesus, which has become popular in pop culture. We've got next one, we've got what I call genetic Jesus. So scientists have done genetic research to try and picture who, what, what the common mid, like Middle Eastern person living around Jerusalem would have looked like in, uh, in the first century AD, and they've done genetic research, and this is the common Middle Eastern man. So this could have been what Jesus looked like. Um, next one, we've got hippie Jesus. I mean, gotta love that. Jesus is psychedelic. Have no idea what they mean by that, but... Uh, Eugene loves that Jesus. Um, but I, I mean, I guess the question is, is when you picture Jesus, what comes to mind for, for you? Um, who is Jesus to you? And, and that is a question that we want to try and answer over the, the next while. And it's a really important question that we wanna try and answer over the next while because whatever our view of Jesus is, whether we call ourselves Christians or not, whether we 
you know, believe that Jesus is uh, the savior of the world or not, uh, all of us have to at some point make up our minds of who Jesus is. He is such an influential figure in the history of the world. Uh, over two billion people worldwide call themselves Christians. So, I mean, just a sheer vast number of the population have been impacted by the life of Jesus. Every time we write the date uh, or, or look at the calendar, we realize that our history has been impacted by Jesus. In South Africa, our history has been impacted by Jesus through someone like Think of someone like J.L. Duby and Pixie Kaseme uh, attending Adams College uh, uh, down, down the coast. Uh, J.L. Duby being a pastor. You've got Albert Latuli. You've got Dennis Hurley. Um, you've got um, Bez Nordia. You've got all these influential figures who sh- helped shape what South Africa is all influenced by Jesus. You go through science and you've got Isaac Newton. You've got um, uh, in, in medicine, you've got people like Florence Nightingale, and you can just go through every area, the arts, the science, people who have been influenced by Jesus. He is a massive figure in history. And at some point, this is a question that we personally have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Now, there is a challenge to, to asking that challenge, uh, to asking that question, and it's a challenge that you and I will face. Um, sorry, guys, that's my mic. It's better now. Um, but, you know, pro- the problem with asking that question is that Actually, we are so influenced by a number of things. And the reason why we come back to this question over and over as Christians, as a church, why we come back to the Gospels and we look at them over and over again is because how influenced we can be uh, when asking that question, who is Jesus? Uh, So an interesting study was done by a guy called Mark Allen Powell. Um, he, he, He was a guy who was trying to figure out why some of his seminary students uh, would get some information wrong when they would recite a particular story in the Bible. So he does this study with the parable of the prodigal son. And what he does is he realizes some of his students would recite the parable of the prodigal son and they would always leave out the same detail. So what he does is he goes across America to, 100, uh, to get 100 different seminary students in different places of America, and he gets them to read the parable of the prodigal son, he gets them to think through it, and then he calls them to recite it to him. 92 out of 100 of those American uh, seminary students, these are people studying the Bible, 92 out of 100 of them leave out the exact same detail. So he's like, this is fascinating. So he goes to Russia and he takes 50 seminary students of Russia, does the exact same exercise and gets them to recite back the parable of the prodigal son. 42 out of the 50 uh, seminary students include that detail. And he's like, this is fascinating. When you tell the story, when US students tell the story, they leave out the detail. When Russian students tell the story, they include it. And he goes into um, understand like how much we are influenced by our 
culture, how much we are influenced by the, our worldviews, by where we live. Um, for those of you wondering right now, what is that detail that got left out? I know some of you are. Um, it's, it's the fact that, oh wait, sorry, before I get this wrong, this is also interesting. So I used to work at a church called Redpoint. And when I first read this study, I was like, no way, this is so weird. So I asked a bunch of people that were on staff with me to recite the parable of the prodigal son. Everyone left out the exact same detail. I was like, this is crazy. So then I asked Tabani this week to recite the parable of the prodigal son. He left out that detail. I was like, what is going on here? Anyway, the detail that was left out was that there was a famine. Uh, so when, when the parable of the prodigal son story is told in the scriptures, it's told about the prodigal that goes off and he spends his money uh, living a reckless life and then a famine comes on the land and, uh, and that's when he goes and you know, gets seats, uh, a job amongst feeding the pigs and then ends up turning and, and coming back to his father. But um, most people in a Western context when they recite that story, just totally leave the famine out. Don't even include the detail. It is insignificant for them in the story. Uh, in Russia, it is extremely significant. Um, and um, what, what the, the author of the study goes on to say is he says this, he says how much our own worldview how much our own culture, how much our view of economics, etc., influences our reading and our understanding of some of the things in Scripture. So if you're in the U.S. where, um, you know, personal freedom and your, your personal independence is such a high value and where you look at the story and you think that the sin of the prodigal son is the sin of wastefulness, he's gone and he's wasted his life. But if you're in Russia... In a socialist society, you look at the parable of the prodigal son and you think it's a sin of self-sufficiency. He has left his family, he's left his community, he's gone on his own and eventually the environment of life has caught up with him, the famine. And, uh, and, and that is the sin. They're influenced by their environments. Our understanding of Jesus is influenced by our economic worldview. Our understanding of Jesus is influenced by our culture. Our understanding of Jesus is influenced by the fact that we live here in Durban, South Africa. That makes doing a series on Jesus challenging because we don't want to just replicate our own views of Jesus. Who is your view of Jesus? Uh, I think of Kel Norton Jr. saying, I like to picture Jesus with a t-shirt tuxedo because, uh, you know, it's serious, but I like to party, so I want my Jesus to party. And uh, I wonder how many of us do that in our lives. Like, I like to picture Jesus as a nice, very kind human being because I want people to be kind, so my Jesus must be kind. Or I like to picture Jesus as a revolutionary fighting the system. Or I like to picture Jesus as Jesus the liberal, Jesus the conservative, Jesus the political figure, Jesus the revolutionary, Jesus who is, how has your view of Jesus been influenced by your own worldview? your own culture, your own view of economics. 
And the challenge of doing this series is that my view of Jesus is influenced by that. Tim Keller says this, he says, one of the reasons why Christians should go through the effort of year after year for their whole lives, making their way through all of the scriptures and doing that again and again and again and again is the only way that we guard ourselves against the, the view of our the worldview, the, the, the view of culture, the view of the pervading sentiments of the age, the only way that we prevent us, our Christianity, our view of Jesus from totally giving into that is by coming back to the scriptures and over and over again, going through them, through the whole of them and allowing them to shape what our view of Jesus is. So that's why um, we do something like expository preaching. Over the next season, over the next few months, we're gonna be doing what's called expository preaching, which is take a text. We're gonna take a text in Mark. We're gonna go through the whole of Mark. Um, we're gonna take a text from it and we're gonna preach out of that text. And we're going to hopefully trust that God is going to use his word to inform, to reshape, to engage with us in our view of Jesus. And hopefully, if we're humble enough, we will allow God's word to adjust us and shape us and challenge us and, and re, help us rethink our view of Jesus. Expository preaching helps us do that, going through the text week after week, allowing it to influence and to shape us. And that's why for the next few months, we're going to be going week after week through the book of Mark. Um, and also, as a, in some sense, as a safeguard against week after week, you guys just getting my own view of, of this, is there's a few of us that every week are meeting and uh, uh, from different cultures, different genders, different age kind of groups to chat around the, the verse that's being preached and to try and through conversation, through engaging, through study, allow um, us not to be completely just, hey, we're just getting Jamie's view here. We want to try and allow the text, allow Mark to shape what we think about Jesus. Uh, while we did that this week, one of the questions that was asked was, uh, why are we doing Mark? Um, uh, and someone basically said, Mark's like the second rate gospel, you know? It's like the gospel, who reads Mark? Is Mark anyone's favorite gospel, you know? And um, uh, so why are we doing Mark when we could be doing John or Matthew or, or, or Luke? Um, and uh, so in simple answer to that, we're doing Mark because it's the shortest. Uh, very pragmatic here, it's only 16 chapters. To do Matthew's 28, we might be here uh, for a long time if we were going through Matthew. Um, so very pragmatically, we're doing Mark because it's 16 chapters, it's significantly shorter um, than, than the other gospels. But we're also doing Mark because Mark does something quite unique in some sense. Mark tries to answer, and we are gonna look at 
Mark 1 verse 1 before I close. But what Mark tries to do is answer this question, who is Jesus? Uh, That's what he is trying to do for us. He's trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? And we've just talked about, gone through three weeks of doing our vision series where we said the vision of Harbor City is Jesus, full stop, to know him, to become like him and to make him known. The vision of Harbor City is Jesus. If this is our vision, then answering this question, who is Jesus, is a really big deal for us as a community. So we want to get into that and allow, as Mark attempts to answer uh, that question, who is Jesus? We want Mark to influence us, to shape us. We want the scriptures um, uh, to shape our view of Jesus. Sorry, this cable is horrible. I have to like hold it tight. Every time I let go, you guys get a little bit of a crackle. Are you okay? I've rushed through that. Everyone okay? Seatbelts on. We're carrying. We're only halfway through the introduction. (laughs) Thank you, Owen. I love that. You love that so much. So a little bit about Mark just to give us a few details. But most, most scholars believe that Mark was the first of the the four gospels written. Uh, it was written by John Mark, who, who we read about at different points in, in the scriptures. Uh, John Mark, who uh, comes up a number of times in Acts. Uh, so it was the first of the gospels written. It's written by John Mark. And most of the scholars believe that Mark is actually writing Peter's gospel. He's writing uh, this from Peter's account. That's why Peter is seen in every encounter with Jesus. Peter is there, he's like the most prominent figure. He's telling the story from his perspective. Mark was known to be a translator of Peter. He was known to be a scribe of Peter. And so most theologians believe that when Mark writes this gospel, he's telling Peter's account of uh, the life of Jesus, which kind of influences uh, the, the gospel, because you know Peter is like a no-nonsense, get to the point, do things kind of guy, and that's kind of what Mark is. It's like you're in there, you get the details, he goes through the story, and you're out. He doesn't cover any backstory. There's no wise men in Mark. There's no like angels at the beginning, you know, singing to the shepherds who watch the flock by night. There's there's none of that kind of introduction. Uh, you know, intro, there's not even much of an end. Jesus rises from the dead, boom, gone. That's the end, close the book. Like he is just in with the details. Um, and, and Mark is broken up into two sections. It's broken up from Mark 1 verse one to eight verse 30. And the first section is literally what, what Mark is gonna do is he's gonna tell us who Jesus is. He wants to tell us who Jesus is, and you see from the, he tells us right up front what he wants us to know about Jesus. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God. He wants us to know those two big ideas, and then he's gonna tell us through the first half of Mark. Um, And then the second half of Mark is just gonna focus on the mission of Jesus, what Jesus did. And so from the second half of Mark, most of it is spent on the last week of Jesus' life. And what he is going to prepare us for is to tell us that Jesus came to die 
and to rise again. So you get this idea when we go to Mark, we're gonna get the first half and he's just telling us over and over again that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And then you get to the end and his disciples have to grapple with the fact that Jesus is gonna die. And Mark's telling the gospel that this is his purpose. Um, and then another thing that you notice about Mark is there's one specific word that's used more than any others. It's a Greek word called euthus, um, which is the word you might notice if you've read Mark, is the word immediately. It's used 41 times. Uh, it's used so often about Jesus. Immediately he does this. Immediately he went there. Uh, immediately he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Immediately it's used over again. And part of the idea is that what, what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to express to us the urgency of the of Jesus, the urgency of the gospel message, but he's also putting this uh, into the, the story, this thing of that Jesus has accomplished stuff. He's done it, like he is who he is. This immediacy gets you through one thing after the other, after the other. You kind of like, kind of like my, feels like my sermon this morning. You put your safety belt on, you read through it. He's going from point to point, story to story. And he's just over and over emphasizing this point. Jesus ha is this person. Jesus has done this thing. I want you to know that. And the, the book is short, but it's fast paced, goes through a lot of uh, interesting things. Um, and it kind of like makes me think of Peter himself. You know, Peter is that kind of guy, you know, he like he'll put his foot in it. The moment something happens, he just says something and you're like, yo, Peter, you should have taken two minutes to think about that before you opened your mouth, you know. Uh, Peter is that kind of man of action. He just jumps out the boat, starts walking on water, realizes he's walking on water and then he's down. He's like, what am I doing? Why am I, glug, glug, glug. Um, but Peter is kind of that kind of guy and you get that idea in this gospel. Phew, anyway, so before, that's a little bit of an introduction on Mark, why Mark, um, um, what we're doing, and hopefully the big idea that we wanna answer this question, who is Jesus? Um, but I wanna just explain the first verse to us and then we'll close. Mark 1 verse one says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, or as uh, uh, some translations, the beginning of the gospel. Good news, gospel uh, can be used interchangeably. The beginning of the gospel or the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Like Mark is giving us in the introduction, he's telling us right up front what this is about. He's saying, hey, I am telling you the good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, uh, who is the Son of God. And I wanna look at just four of those terms and then we'll close. The first is the term beginning. So a lot of commentators believe that Mark is very intentional about using the word, the beginning uh, of the good news, and then he's not using it because this is the start of the 
good news. You know, like I said, he starts midway. He starts with Jesus in his 30s. He's not starting with Jesus who was born uh, of a virgin. He's not giving us any of that kind of story, no childhood. He's not starting us with anything like that. We literally just start in the action uh, with Jesus. But most of, of the commentators think that he's not saying that to tell us, hey, you know what, this is when Jesus started his ministry. He's saying this very strategically to say, to give an echo of Genesis. That when you read the word, the beginning of the good news, uh, just like when you read John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. When you read John 1 verse 1, the first thing you meant to think about is Genesis 1. You meant to think about creation. And in the same way, what Mark is doing is he's saying that the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the start of Jesus and his ministry is as epic a moment as the creation in Genesis 1. It is, as theologians say, the beginning of new creation. Jesus has rocked up, new creation is here. What God is accomplishing and making new in the world has started with Jesus. And Mark wants us to know that right up front, that what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's accomplished is of such epic proportions that it is comparable to Genesis 1 verse 1, the creation of the world. Like he wants us to know this is a big deal. Jesus has rocked up, who Jesus is, who we, you know, our view of Jesus, etc., is such a big deal that it is as big a deal as the beginning of time. New creation has started with Jesus. We called this uh, series the Jesus Movement, um, which, uh, you know, we easily could have called it who is Jesus because in some sense that's the big idea, the big question that we're asking. But the reason why we called it the Jesus movement is in one sense because of this, that Jesus, his coming, his work, who he is, starts a movement, a movement that we're part of today, 2,000 years on, that two billion people around the world will identify themselves with it. It started with new creation breaking out through the person and the life of Jesus. He is the beginning. The reason for the faces in the posters, the faces behind us, is because we are, we are part of that. You and I, our faces can be up there. We're part of this new creation movement. Jesus has started something of epic proportions. And Mark wants us to know that. He's telling us right up front that the story he is going to tell us now is so big, is so epic that he is echoing the start of Genesis. It's the same what John does in John 1. It's the disciples believing that Jesus is so important that the world being made right, new creation breaking out, 
happens because Jesus has arrived. Jesus, uh, it says, Paul says of Jesus that he is the first fruits of new creation. Jesus is uh, the beginning of the new creation story that you and I are a part of. The second term I wanna look at is the word gospel or good news. Gospel's an interesting term that the disciples chose to use when they talk about this literary genre um, or when they talk about the message of Jesus, uh, the good news, the gospel. Uh, it's, it's the Greek word eugelion and um, it's, it's such an interesting term because it was used before, it's not a, it's not a new term. There was a new literary genre, it was never a written uh, idea that gospels would be written, but it was a term, the word gospel was a term used for a town crier that would walk into a town and he would herald good news. And there were two pieces of good news that a town crier would herald in uh, and, you know, mention at uh, um, when he would ride into town. There were generally only two pieces of good news that the town crier would say. And the, the one would either be that Caesar's had a child or the new king has been inaugurated, something like that. So he would walk right into town. Uh, he's not telling them, hey, good news, you need to pay more taxes. Like it's none of that kind of thing. It's literally, he's heralding major, major events for, for the empire. Hey, guess what? Caesar's had a child. The whole of the empire needs to stop and celebrate. Or the other thing that the, the um, town crier would do is he would ride into town and he would say, hey, guess what? We went to battle against these people and we won. Everyone stop what you're doing and celebrate. What's interesting is that the gospel writers, the disciples, choose to use the word about the message of Jesus, about who Jesus is. They choose to use the word eugelion. They're not using the word gnosis, which is the word of like knowledge. We're not here to tell you more knowledge. We're not here to give you more information. Like this, we're not here to give you what Plato gave you or any of the philosophers. We are here to tell you news, good news. What it means and what this is really important for us in understanding is what the disciples are saying is that Number one, this event is historical. That's what, what Eugelion would be. Someone has told a fact of something that's happened, something that's happened. They would come right into town and say, the battle is won, this person has been born, this new Caesar's been inaugurated, whatever it is. Like they would ride into town and proclaim a historical event. The disciples are saying Jesus is a historical event of such epic proportions that it should completely shape the world. But what the other thing that the disciples choose in using this word is that the gospel is not something that is required of us. It's something that's been done for us. It's not something that's required from us. It's not like the, the town crier, you know, 
riding into town and saying, hey, guess what, guys? VAT has gone up from 14 to 15%. Woo! And everyone's like, oh, no, the empire, the burden of the empire. It's not like, hey, yo, people, we've got new laws. Or, hey, guess what? Let me tell you about this new bit of wisdom we've known that we want you all to practice. It's not like that. What the disciples are saying by using the word eugelion is they saying, hey, guess what? We're telling you about an event and that event has a massive impact on you. It ha- it's not requiring anything of you. We're not asking for more taxes. We're not asking for more obedience. We're not asking you to do more things. We're just telling you that Jesus was born, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and guess what? That changes everything. In one sense, to use the word eugelion is a political statement. When they say, hey, we wanna tell you the good news, and it's not about Caesar, what they're saying is that there is a new king in town. It's subversive. It's political, it's radical. The gospel, by using the word gospel, by Mark opening up, it's not just saying the beginning, hey guys, this is the start of new creation. He's saying this is the start of this person, Jesus, who has ramifications that should ripple throughout the world. And we want to look at that as we look at Jesus. What about Jesus that he's done and who he is should have an impact on us now? Living in an East African port city in 2023. The third term is the term Messiah. Um, You know, Jesus Christ, uh, Christ or Messiah can be used interchangeably. One is Greek, one is Hebrew. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, We think that Jesus Christ is like Jesus' surname. Don't know if you've ever thought that before. Jesus Christ, oh, that's his surname. Like if Jesus had little babies, would they be like baby Christ? You know, like... um, we, we can often think that that was Jesus's surname, but they were making a statement about Jesus when they said Jesus Christ. They were making a statement about who they believed he was. Um, and that was that they believed he was the Messiah. The Messiah was the promised one throughout the Old Testament, over and over again. There's a promised one that uh, the the Jewish people would believe as coming. And he, when he comes, he is going to establish God's rule. He's going to set things right. So they wanted, they anticipated, they were hoping for this promised person, this king in the line of David that was going to restore God's order to the world. This one who was going to crush the serpent under his Healed, the seed that would you know, be the promise of Abraham, the Messiah that was the king, the prophet, uh, the priest, the one that was going to restore God's order. When they're talking about Jesus being the Messiah, what they're saying is they, they're anticipating the prophetic promise coming to light. God is 
restoring all things through this individual. He is restoring his order in the world by the Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. He would save, as as prophesied in Isaiah, he would save God's people from their sins. He would save God's people from their rebellion. The Messiah was this savior, this redeemer, this king, this prophet, this one that was going to come and restore the kingdom of God to earth. But when they anticipated Messiah, they anticipated a warrior, they anticipated someone like David, you know, who, who was gonna slay Goliath. And, uh, and so people begin to tell Jesus that he's Messiah. I mean, Peter himself, which we will see uh, later on, Peter himself says, you are the cross, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And when they say that he's the Messiah, they anticipate both through his authority, his power, his ability to do miracles, that what he's ultimately going to do is he's going to get a band of people that are going to overthrow Caesar and restore Israel to its position of glory. So that's what they're expecting. They're expecting, hey, Jesus the Messiah, he's the one, he's restoring God's order, he's gonna be this king and he's gonna take the world by force and we're excited. We're behind Jesus, he's gonna do that. Him and Caesar, they're gonna have like this little bit of a, uh, they're gonna battle it out, but Jesus is gonna win. He's the promised Messiah. That's what they anticipate. And so you get to Mark 8, which we'll look at down the road, but you get to Mark 8 and what does Peter do? Peter when Jesus says that he must suffer and die, Peter rebukes him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? Like, I don't know if you've thought about that. Like, imagine rebuking Jesus. Yes, Jesus. You're like, Jesus, you've got this one wrong. You're not gonna die. You're gonna go and kill Caesar and you're gonna, you know, bring us to glory through your military conquest. And we know how the story goes, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, you have in your heart the things of man, not the things of God. Like they anticipated a Messiah that would be a military conqueror. But what Mark is gonna tell us is that God's promised Messiah is gonna be the fulfillment of Isaiah, which is he is going to be the suffering servant. That God is going to make all things new, not through military conquest, he's gonna make all things new through laying down his life. And by telling us that story, he's gonna set the tone for the Jesus movement throughout the rest of time. It's why American Christianity right now is such a bad representation of the gospel because it's so, you know, you think of America, you think a Christian nation, and then you think of America bombing Iraq, you know, like, like that's that's what you think of. You think of that the gospel moves forward through political conquest, but that is the very thing that Jesus stands against. It's the very challenge of his disciples that they have to learn that God is going to change the world, but he's going to do it through a suffering servant. And then the final thing that Mark tells us is that Jesus is not just the Messiah. 
He is the son of God. He is the son of God. What Mark is telling us at this point is he's telling us that we must not just take note of Jesus because he is the promised one coming to restore the kingdom. We must take note of Jesus because he is God himself. The son of God has come. God incarnate has arrived. God amongst his people. In Matthew 1, it says he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. John 1 verse 14 in the message says, uh, you know, Jesus, God rocked up in the word came. God rocked up in the neighborhood, in amongst us. What Mark is telling us is that Jesus is not just the Messiah, the promised king who's going to restore the kingdom. He's more than that. Jesus is God himself moving into our neighborhood. The world is being restored, not just by someone working for God. The world is being restored because God is working at it himself. Over the next while, what we really want to do is we want to look at who Jesus is and what it means for us to be part of this Jesus movement. What it means for us to be followers and disciples of Jesus. We want to go through the book of Mark. And uh, as we go through the book of Mark, you know, and see as Mark highlights who Jesus is, the Messiah and the Son of God. And then we see what Jesus has done, that he laid down his life on the cross and rose again. As we look at these big ideas, we want to be shaped by who Jesus is. And my hope for you and I over this next while, whether you, know, you believe in Jesus, whether you, you just think he was an important philosophical figure, my hope is that you and I over the next few months as we go through this gospel is that we will allow ourselves to be shaped as the scriptures tell us who Jesus is. I'm excited for this journey for myself personally. Um, I, I know that I, I do the bulk of the preaching and other people will preach as well through, through the book of Mark, but I, I know that I do the, the bulk of the preaching and so sometimes it can feel or seem like, hey, he, you know, Jamie's bringing his knowledge of, of the book of Mark. My hope for myself is that I'm journeying with us as a community and us as a community are being shaped as we deeply allow ourselves to be impacted by the scriptures. As some of us sit down and have conversations during the week, as we crit some things and we ask questions and you know our views get challenged on some things, that Sunday after Sunday, as the word is preached, as we go into our life groups, Tuesday and Wednesday, whenever our life groups meet, that we're allowing ourselves to be shaped by who Jesus is. That the gospel will realign us away from t-shirt tuxedo Jesus or big teddy bear Jesus or 
Jesus with the iron rod or whatever picture of Jesus we have to being Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the scriptures moving us, shaping our thinking uh, so that we can believe Jesus as he says he is. Can I pray for us? Lord, I thank you for the book of Mark. I thank you for your scriptures that over and over challenge us, challenge our way of thinking, challenge our worldviews. And uh, I do pray, Lord, that week after week as we go through the book of Mark, that you will challenge, you will shape, you will encourage, you will stir us. I think of that guy telling the story about how U.S. Christians and Russian Christians can look at the same story in two total different ways. But I pray, Lord, that we, as we come and look at the scriptures and we allow ourselves to be impacted, and we'd be impacted by all the different facets of who you are that are brought out by the diversity of your people. I pray, Lord, that if you're challenging us about wastefulness, as that story does, that we would allow ourselves to be challenged. If you're challenging us about self-sufficiency, we would allow ourselves to be challenged in any way that your scriptures highlight to us, Lord. Oh, I ask that you, by your spirit, would speak to us and move us and shape us by your word and by your life. In Jesus' name, amen.